Section 21 Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10 Victor Cousin 1792-1867 All philosophy, past and present, has been based on the attempt to make abstract ideas clear. The questions Cousin endeavors to answer are, Do ideas exist apart from being and knowledge? And if so, on what are they founded? And his answer involves his whole doctrine, Victor Cousin, the son of a watchmaker of Voltairian principles and of a laundress of strong religious convictions, was born in Paris on November 28, 1792. But, in spite of his humble origin, he obtained a brilliant education and, through the force of his genius, lived to have precedence at court over his social superiors. The little gamin owed his start in life to Madame Vigouet, who placed him at school. On leaving college, from which he was graduated first in his class at the age of eighteen, he could have obtained a position in the Council of State at a yearly salary of five thousand francs, but he preferred to enter the normal school, then but recently established, with the intention of teaching literature. The impression made upon him by Laromijouer's lectures on philosophy decided him to devote himself to the latter branch of study. Philosophy, to Cousin, was not only a keen delight, but a battle as well. Many systems were then arrayed against each other. These, in turn, fascinated his imagination and excited his enthusiasm first the sensual school, then Scottish philosophy, as developed by Royer Collard and Man de Beren, then Kant, Schelling, Hegel, whose genius he was the first to recognize, and later Plotinus, Descartes, and Leibniz. All these doctrines, as he expounded them in his lectures, simmered in his imagination for a while, and, unconsciously modifying each other, left a deposit from which arose eclecticism. There was a dearth of French men of letters when Cousin reached manhood. To become a fashionable lecturer, it was only necessary to speak of literature and philosophy in elegant language, and as to these requirements, the young orator added a poetic imagination. He became famous at once. One of Cousin's distinguishing qualities was the impetus he gave to other minds. His lectures created positive fanaticism. But twenty years of age, his delicate face was lighted up with magnificent dark eyes which emitted fire as his own enthusiasm grew. He had a fine voice, was a finished comedian, a poet rather than a deep or original thinker, a preacher rather than a professor, and looked like a tribune and apostle in one. 
It is difficult to understand nowadays the enthusiasm aroused by Cousin's philosophy or the attacks upon it. He advanced no new truths. No objection could be made to a belief in God, the spirituality and immortality of the soul, and moral liberty. But Cousin went further. He wished to establish philosophy on an independent basis, to found an intermediate school that would not clash with religion, but subsist side by side with, though independent of, and in a certain measure controlling it. This aroused the hostility of the church without satisfying the extremists, who clamored for more radical doctrines. After 1820, when the normal school was suppressed, Cousin had recourse to private teaching, and devoted his leisure to editing the classics. His edition of Plato occupied him many years. Every man's life should contain one monument and several episodes, he declared, and his Plato, he believed, was destined to be his monument. When Cousin was restored to his chair in 1828, he brought with him a new philosophy which fulfilled the aspirations of the rising generation, whose idol he became. During this course, he propounded a few transcendental theories borrowed from Hegel and Schelling, emitted several contestable historical views, and distributed all the doctrines he knew, and, add his enemies, all those he did not know, into four divisions. Taken as a whole, Cousin's system has far more in common with Christianity than with pantheism. During the next three years he made rapid strides in his career. He had taken no part in the July Revolution, but his friends were placed in office by that event, and through their influence he became successively member of the Royal Council of Public Instruction, member of the Academy, and peer of France. Cousin was in virtual control of French philosophy when, in 1830, he resigned his chair to become director of the Sorbonne. To his new task he brought an intelligence matured by time, and the twenty years of his administration were fruitful of good results. He formed a corps of learned professors, perfected the study of French, and placed philosophy on a sound basis. His indefatigable activity, breadth of view, and devotion to teaching made him an admirable director of a school destined to train the professors of a nation. Each one was encouraged to take up an original line of research. He regulated the position of the Sorbonne towards religion, instructing the teachers that belief in God, free will, and duty was to be inculcated. Not being of a naturally tender disposition, Cousin may not have loved the students for themselves, but he passionately loved talent and exerted himself to foster and develop it. Of a disdainful, sarcastic turn of mind, Cousin's mordant wit was well known and greatly feared. His habits were frugal, and though he dressed badly, he was prodigal with regard to books he nowhere appeared to better advantage than in his library at the Sorbonne, where so many of his books were written. 
he could talk magnificently on any subject for an hour after that his own eloquence carried him beyond all bounds and he was apt to indulge in paradox guizot said of him c'est l'esprit qui allait plus besoin de gardefou his is a mind which has the greatest need of restraint his voice was wonderfully expressive witty sayings comparisons anecdotes crowded upon his tongue as a rule he absorbed the entire conversation and created a sensation as he loved to do liberal in matters of philosophy rather than in politics cousin engaged in a battle with the clergy to whom however he cheerfully conceded the rights granted by the charter and a certain preponderance in the schools he considered it criminal to attack religion and required it to be taught in the primary schools though he excluded it from the university where it might clash with philosophy towards the end of his life he entered into a correspondence with the pope to prevent the true the beautiful the good from being placed on the index expurgatorius and obtained his point only after lengthy negotiations in the early years of his life cousin's poetic temperament aided by youth carried him towards pure philosophy and german ideas the word pantheism however grew to be a very abomination to him but storm and protest as he would it pursued him all his life his lyric descriptions of god were rigidly interpreted according to pantheistic formulae and hurled at his head until he cried enough this is the truth was answered back though he had long since erased that compromising endorsement of schelling's system debarred from both politics and teaching at the age of sixty with intellect and vitality unimpaired cousin devoted the fourteen remaining years of his life to literature and now that the eclectic philosophy is considered merely a brilliant but fleeting system which has lived its day we still turn with pleasure to his biographies it was by study of the seventeenth century that cousin's purely literary career began he relates facts and penetrates the nature of his characters tan declares that when at last the lovely face of madame de longueville does appear crash goes a pile of folios to the floor nevertheless strength and energy characterize cousin's style and make good his dictum style is movement to the very end cousin retained the spontaneous emotion of youth the quality of vehemence everywhere so apparent in these biographies presupposes an intense emotion which is communicated from the writer to the reader it was a current joke among the professors of the sorbonne that her biographer was in love with madame de longueville every one knows that cousin is the chevalier servant of madame de longueville writes tan this noble lady has had the rare privilege of making post-mortem conquests and the solid walls of the sorbonne have not protected monsieur cousin from the darts of her beautiful eyes he is so deeply in love with her that he speaks of conde her brother as a brother-in-law and of la rochefoucauld her lover as a rival 
Cousin's critics take this retrospective infatuation too seriously. It was merely an episode in his life, and when Sainte-Beuve said, Cousin's bust would one day have engraved beneath it, he wished to found a great system of philosophy, and he loved Madame de Longueville. He was more witty than just. It is only fair to add that Sainte-Beuve considered Cousin the most brilliant meteor that had flashed across the sky of the nineteenth century. In his later years, Cousin recommended the true, the beautiful, the good, and his philosophy of history for perusal in preference to his other books. He was conscious of the drawback attendant upon scattering his doctrines over so many books, and condensed them in the former volume. Composed of brilliant and incomplete fragments, if it does not constitute a systematic whole, the pages relating to God and necessary and universal principles are, however, full of grandeur, and will always endear it to humanity. On the 2nd of January, 1867, Cousin passed away during his sleep, having been until the last in full possession of the lucidity and vigor which characterized his mind. He left his fine library to the state, with ample funds for its maintenance. He has had the privilege of living in the books of many distinguished men, whose minds he trained, whose careers he advanced, and who have recorded in brilliant pages the debt owed him, not by themselves alone, but by all Frenchmen of succeeding generations. Selection Pascal's Skepticism by Victor Cousin From Les Pensées de Pascal Pascal was skeptical of philosophy, not of religion. It is because he is skeptical in philosophical matters and recognizes the powerlessness of reason and the destruction of natural truth among men that he clings desperately to religion as the last resource of humanity. What is philosophical skepticism? It is a philosophical opinion which consists in rejecting philosophy as unfounded, on the ground that man of himself is incapable of reaching any truth, and still less those truths which constitute what philosophy terms natural morals and religion, such as free will, the law of duty, the distinction between good and evil, the saint and the sinner, the holiness of virtue, the immateriality of the soul, and divine providence. Skepticism is not the enemy of any special school of philosophy, but of all. Pascal's pensées are imbued with philosophical skepticism. Pascal is the enemy of all philosophy, which he rejected utterly. He does not admit the possibility of proving God's existence, and to demonstrate the impotence of reason he invented a desperate argument we can ignore truth but we cannot ignore our own interest the interest of our eternal happiness according to him we must weigh the problem of divine providence from this point of view if god does not exist it cannot hurt us to believe in him but if by chance he should exist and we do not believe in him the consequences to us would be terrible let us examine this point of view and say god is 
or he is not writes pascal to which belief do we incline reason is powerless to solve the question for us chaos separates us from its solution at the extreme end of this infinite distance a game is being played in which heads or tails will turn up what do we win in either case through the power of mere reason we can neither prove nor disprove god's existence through the power of reason we can defend neither proposition on this foundation not of truth but of interest pascal founds the celebrated calculation to which he applies the law of chance here is the conclusion he reaches in the eyes of reason to believe or not to believe in god the for and against or as i say the game of croix ou pile is equally without consequence but in the eyes of interest the difference is infinite because the infinite is to be gained or lost thereby pascal considers scepticism legitimate because philosophy or natural reason is incapable of attaining to certitude he affirms the sole role of reason to be the renouncement of reason that true philosophy consists in despising philosophy the god of abraham the god of jacob not the god of savants and philosophers is the god of pascal he caught a gleam of light and believed he had found peace in submission to christ and his confessor doubt yielded to grace but vanquished doubt carried reason and philosophy in its train selection madame de longueville by victor cousin from the life of madame de longueville what a number of accomplished women the seventeenth century produced women who inspired adoration drew all hearts towards them and spread among all ranks the cultus of beauty termed by europe french gallantry they accompany this great century upon its too rapid flight and mark its principal moments madame de longueville has her place in the brilliant galaxy of seventeenth-century women by the right of true beauty and rare charm born in sixteen nineteen in the prison of vincennes during the captivity of her father henri de bourbon whose wife the beautiful marguerite de montmorency shared his imprisonment mademoiselle de bourbon grew in grace under the care of her mother dividing her time between the carmelite convent and the hotel de rambouillet nourishing her soul upon pious and romantic books married at the age of twenty-three to a man twenty-three years her senior she found that m de longueville instead of trying by tenderness to make his young wife forget this disparity followed the triumphal car of the famous duchesse de montbazon the veriest coquette of the century insulted by her rival neglected by her husband madame de longueville yielded by degrees to the contagion in the midst of which she lived and after having spent some time at the frivolous court of munster was fascinated on her return to paris by the wit chivalrous appearance and distinguished manners of the prince de marsillac afterwards duke de la rochefoucauld this intimacy decided her career, the first part of which it closed in 1648. 
the vicissitudes of the fronde love as it was understood at the hotel rambouillet that is love a la scuderie with its enchantments its sufferings intermingled with danger and glory crossed by adventures triumphant over the greatest tests yielding finally to its own weakness and exhausting itself such is the second period of madame de longueville's life a period so short and yet so crowded with events which began in sixteen forty eight and ended towards the middle of sixteen fifty four after sixteen fifty four madame de longueville's life was one long repentance daily growing in austerity passed first by the bedside of her husband and then at the carmelite convent and at port royal where she died in sixteen seventy nine first spotless brilliancy then sin and prompt expiation thus is divided the career of madame de longueville a famous beauty she possessed height and a fine figure her eyes were of the tenderest blue her light brown hair of exceptional fineness fell in abundant curls around the graceful oval of her face and rippled over her shoulders which were fully exposed in accordance with the fashion of the time add to these attractions a complexion whose fairness delicacy and soft brilliancy justified its being compared with a pearl her charming skin reflected all the emotions of her soul she spoke in the softest voice her gestures harmonized with her face and voice making perfect music but her greatest charm was a graceful ease of manner a languor which had brilliant awakenings when she was moved by passion but which in everyday life gave her an appearance of aristocratic indifference of indolence frequently mistaken for ennui or disdain madame de longueville loved but one person for his sake she sacrificed repose interest duty and reputation for his sake she embarked upon the rashest and most contradictory enterprises la rochefoucauld drew her into the fronde it was he who made her advance or retreat who separated her from or reconciled her with her family who controlled her absolutely in his hands she became a heroic instrument passion and pride had their share in the life of adventure she faced so bravely but what a soul she must have possessed to find consolation in struggles such as these and as so often happens the man for whom she made these sacrifices was unworthy of them witty but selfish he judged others by himself subtle in evil as she was in good full of selfish cunning in the pursuit of his interests the least chivalrous of men though he affected the semblance of the highest chivalry when he believed that madame de longueville was yielding to the influence of the duc de nemours he turned against her blackened her reputation revealed the weaknesses by which he had profited and when she was struggling to repair her mistakes by the rigid mortification of the cloister he published those memoirs in which he tore her to pieces la rochefoucauld made his peace with the court he even rode in mazarin's carriages saying with inimitable aplomb everything comes to pass in france 
he obtained a pension for himself a fine position for his son and was worshipped by lovely women one of whom madame de lafayette replaced madame de longueville and consecrated her life to him how different was madame de longueville's conduct love led her into the fronde love kept her there when love failed her everything failed her the proud heroine who waged war against mazarin who sold her jewels braved the ocean aroused the north and south and held the royal authority at bay withdrew from the scene at the age of thirty-five in the full maturity of her beauty when her own interest was alone at stake to understand madame de longueville's character to exonerate her from the charge of inconsistency or want of purpose the unity of her life must be sought in her devotion to the man she loved it is there in its entirety and unchangeableness at once triumphant absurd and pathetic in the midst of the greatest follies her recklessness was inspired by the fickle restless mind of la rochefoucauld it was he who drifted from one faction to another moved by his own interest alone to madame de longueville herself belong her courage in the face of danger a certain secret delight in the extremity of misfortune and in defeat a pride not inferior to that of durette's himself she does not drop her eyes she directs her gaze towards worthier objects once wounded in that which was most precious to her her love she bade adieu to the world without currying favour with the court and asking pardon of god alone selection madame de chevreuse by victor cousin from the life of madame de chevreuse madame de chevreuse was endowed with almost all the qualities constituting political genius one alone was wanting and this was precisely the master quality without which all the others lead but to the ruin of their possessor she was incapable of keeping in view a steady aim or rather of choosing her own aim some one else always directed her choice she had an essentially feminine temperament therein lay the secret of her strength and weakness her spring of action was love or rather gallantry and the interest of the man she loved became for the time being her main object in life this accounts for the wonderful sagacity subtlety and energy she expended in the pursuit of a chimerical aim which constantly eluded her grasp and which seemed to charm her by the spell of its difficulty and danger la rochefoucauld accuses her of bringing misfortune upon all who loved her it was more just to say that all whom she loved drew her into foolhardy enterprises richelieu and mazarin left no stone unturned to attach madame de chevreuse to their interests richelieu considered her an enemy worthy of his steel he exiled her several times and when after his death the doors of france were opened to the men he had proscribed the cardinal's implacable resentment survived in the soul of the dying louis the thirteenth who closed them to her 
If you turn to Mazarin's confidential letters, you will see what intense anxiety this beautiful conspirator caused him in 1643. During their fronde, he had reason to congratulate himself on having effected a reconciliation with her, and followed her wise advice. In 1660, when the victorious Mazarin signed the treaties of Westphalia and the Pyrenees, and Don Luis de Haro congratulated him on the peace which was about to succeed to years of storms, the cardinal answered that peace was not possible in a country where even women were to be feared. You Spaniards can speak lightly of such matters, since your women are interested in love alone, but things are different in France, where there are three women quite capable of upsetting the greatest kingdom in the world, namely the Duchesse of Longueville, the Princess Palatine, and the Duchesse of Chevreuse. Selection Comparison between Madame d'Hautfort and Madame de Chevreuse by Victor Cousin from The Life of Madame de Chevreuse Fate placed them both in the same century, in the same party, and in the midst of the same events, but far from resembling each other, they illustrate opposite poles of the character and destiny of women. Both were ravishingly beautiful, brilliantly intelligent, unflinchingly courageous, but one was as pure as she was beautiful, uniting grace with majesty, and inspiring respect as well as love. The favorite of a king, not a suspicion touched her, proud to haughtiness, with the great and powerful, sweet and compassionate to the oppressed, loving greatness and prizing virtue above the esteem of the world, combining the wit of a precieuse, the daintiness of a fashionable beauty, with the intrepidity of a heroine and the dignity of a great lady, she left an odor of sanctity behind her. The other possessed even greater powers of fascination and an irresistible charm witty but ignorant, thrown into the midst of party excesses, and thinking but little of religion, too great a lady to submit to restraint, bowing only to the dictates of honor, abandoned to gallantry, and making light of all else, despising danger and public opinion for the sake of the man she loved, restless rather than ambitious, freely risking her life and that of others, and after spending her youth in intrigues and plots, and strewing her path with victims, travelling through Europe as captive and conqueror, and turning the heads of kings. Having seen Chalet ascend the scaffold, Chateauneuf dismissed from the ministry, the Duc de Lorraine stripped of his possessions, Buckingham assassinated, the King of Spain launched upon a disastrous war, Queen Anne humiliated, and Richelieu triumphant, defiant to the last, always ready to play a part in that game of politics which had become a passion with her, to descend to the lowest intrigues, or to take the most reckless course of action, seeing the weakness of her enemy, and daring enough to undertake his ruin. Madame de Chevreuse was a devoted friend, an implacable enemy, the most redoubtable adversary of both Richelieu and Mazarin. 
End of section 21